And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in a rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. They exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to also to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. We are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right not only in the eyes of, Lord, of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you, so that the churches can see it. Let me read again verse 9. Familiar words to many of us in my prayer, our prayer, I hope, 
is that God would write them on our hearts. Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We prayed already, speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. We Brits tend to be quite awkward about money. We don't talk about money very often, certainly not about personal finances. But there's no coyness in the Bible when it comes to talk about money. It's one of the advantages of expository preaching. What we're trying to do is often take a book of the Bible, we're taking 2 Corinthians at the moment, and then we go from one chapter to the next to the next, so we can't choose what we speak about. If we did, we might not talk about money very much, but there's no coyness in the Bible. If you're familiar with Paul's letters to the Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, there's one chapter on marriage, there's a chapter on the Lord's Supper, there's a chapter on the resurrection, there are two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9, on giving. Paul is dealing with a subject very close to his heart. If you're familiar with his letters, quite often he talks about his collection. He's conscious of significant need in the church in Jerusalem, as it were, the mother church, where it all began. And all those early Christians in Jerusalem were Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and because of a combination of famine and extreme persecution, they suffered greatly. Paul went out to preach to the Gentile world and Gentile churches were established around the place. And Paul quite often appeals to those Gentile churches to give money to his collection that he might take it to the poor church in Jerusalem. And that, of course, was to meet their very real needs. It also had symbolic significance for Paul. It would manifest the recognition of the Gentile church is that they had Jewish roots. They depended on God's work amongst the Jews. And if the Jews were to receive it, they would be accepting, as it were, the Gentile mission. It was one way of proclaiming very clearly that they were all one in Christ Jesus. And Paul is passionately committed to raising money to care for these desperately poor Christians. And so he, here he's appealing to the Christians in Corinth, and the principles we get will help us as we think about our own money, our attitude to money, how we give our money. And we're going to notice two examples of giving, and then briefly four principles for giving. First, two examples of giving, verses 1 to 9. What's striking as you read these verses is the word money never appears. No mention of money explicitly, but grace, that comes again and again and again. It's there at the beginning, verse 1. We want you to know about the grace that has been given the Macedonian churches. It's there at the end of verse 7. Paul appeals to the Corinthians that they might follow the Macedonian example and that they too might excel in this grace of giving. Now, I'm conscious there'll be some here who are not committed Christians, you may be here as a, as a visitor, and I want to tell you straight away, we don't want to get your money. So there'll be no bags coming along at the end of this talk. I'm not going to put pressure on you. We don't want to get your money. We do desperately want you to get grace. To understand what is at the heart of the Christian faith. 
which is not about what we can get out of you, but about what God has given to all of us. Grace, it speaks of undeserved love. Christians, church members, this is no gift day appeal. We just happen to be dealing with this because it's the next chapter. So I don't want to get your money. I do want you to get grace. Of course, the more we together get grace, the more we will become givers of our money and of everything else that we have because we recognize it's first been given to us by God. Grace, grace. And these two examples of giving both feature grace. For a start, the Macedonians, supernatural grace. Verses 1 to 7, as Paul appeals to the Corinthians, he says, look at the example of what God did in the Macedonian church. Verse 1 again, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that, has been, that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, what he's talking about here is the very generous way in which the Macedonian churches in, in Greece responded to this appeal and gave to the collection. But he speaks of their very generous giving, not so much as something that they have done, but rather something God has done. The focus here is not on their gift to the Jerusalem church, but on God's gift to them. I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. God has so worked in their lives, in his amazing grace, that they have become givers. So Christian giving is a supernatural work of God. I mean, you get fundraisers, and uh, it, it's perfectly natural in the world. People will, uh, will appeal, and there are various techniques that will enable you to respond. And there's something quite natural about that. It's not wrong in and of itself. But Paul is saying, what I'm talking about here is not some kind of natural kind of giving. Some people are naturally generous. And Paul's not talking about that either. He's talking here about something that simply would not have occurred without the work of God. This is not some clever fundraiser. It's not a naturally generous heart. It's a supernatural work of God. Just how supernatural it is comes clear in verse 2. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And Paul says, do notice the context of their very generous giving. It's not what you might expect. Two extraordinary couplings. In the midst of a very severe trial. Well, you might think that a very severe trial would most naturally lead to misery. They're going through an extremely hard time. You'd understand if they were miserable. But Paul says, no, their extreme trial was combined, astonishingly, with overflowing joy. That's a work of God. That even in the midst of these very hard circumstances, they looked beyond those circumstances. They were not the be-all and end-all, and they saw God at work in them. And the amazing grace of God meant that they were full of joy nonetheless. And that joy did not depend on circumstances, it depended on the love of God which is always there for them in Christ. And that joy overflowed. And it was seen in the way they gave. 
Or here's another remarkable coupling. Extreme poverty. Well, you might think the natural outcome of extreme poverty is quite understandably to be concerned for yourself. Where's the next meal going to come from? But their extreme poverty welled up. And again, there's a sense of something just bursting out of them. They couldn't stop it. It welled up in rich generosity. You cannot explain that humanly. This is the work of God. He so opened their eyes and their hearts to God's grace to them that even in the midst of extreme trials and extreme poverty, they couldn't but give. Verse 3, I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. This is no external pressure. No Paul ranking it up with an emotional appeal. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. They didn't say, we're desperate, Paul, please give us something. No, they said, please may we give. I remember being told a long time ago that you're not really giving until it hurts. In other words, you're not really giving unless there's some kind of sacrifice involved. But here it seems that the Macedonians were saying, as it were, we've got to give because it hurts us not to. It's an internal compulsion. It's a very strange kind of begging. Here are these desperate people, and you might think that they would beg for help, but in fact these desperate people are begging, pleading to be able to help others. It seems Paul, perhaps because he was conscious of their great needs, didn't actually ask them for money. But they hear that Paul has been asking the other churches, and they say, us too, Paul. Please can we be involved in this gift. When the grace of God is at work in a Christian's life, their heart will be softened, their wallet or their purse will be opened, and the tight-fisted become open handed. And that's seen not just in the way we use our money. Think of the student away from home for the first time, managing their own finances. Favorite biscuit, Jaffa cakes. Quite expensive. Knock on the door. Someone coming for a cup of coffee. Instinct, Jaffa cakes. Put in the bottom drawer, out come the rich tea. Does anyone actually eat rich tea biscuits anywhere? That's a, that's a kind of instinct, isn't it? It might be in only small things. But that's an attitude that flows through into the way in which we use the whole of everything. But if the grace of God touches someone, or maybe they're having rich tea because that's the normal thing they use, but then there's a knock on the door, special guest, a friend, outcome, the Jaffa Cakes. It's not about our money, it's just about a whole attitude to life. God gives generously, he pours generously. That's my attitude to all that I have. Attitude to time. So there's someone who's thinking that uh, beyond work, where I'm paid to do something for someone else, the rest of life is me time, my time. Even resent giving time to the family. It's about enjoying myself and my hobbies. And then the gospel takes root 
and gets a grip of that person. And suddenly they're thinking, not first and foremost, how can I enjoy myself? How can I mollycoddle myself and look after myself? But how can I give? And suddenly someone who had no time for anyone is volunteering to help with the Holiday Bible Club. Is volunteering to go and shop for that elderly neighbor who can't go out themselves. That's what the gospel does. Verse 5, they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. God doesn't want your money. He wants you. And everything else will flow from that. And Paul is longing that the Corinthians will follow this example and I take it he longs that we would as well. Supernatural grace. And the other example is the supreme example. Verses 8 and 9. Sacrificial grace. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm not commanding you. Once again, I'm not compelling you. This is not about me putting pressure on you from outside you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love. What I care about is what's going on in your heart. And what will grip your heart and make you givers? It's a deep understanding by the Holy Spirit, of what God has done for us in Christ. Verse 9, for you know the grace, that word again, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for, for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Someone wants to understand the Christian faith and they're new to it, that's a pretty good verse to start with. It speaks of the amazing Grace. Amazing how people get completely the wrong end of the stick about the Christian life, don't they? I think I did before I first understood about grace. I kind of assumed that it was all about what I had to do, and God is looking down, waiting for me to do enough, and only when I've done enough, maybe given enough, only then will he think, right, you've earned it now, I'll accept you and love you. As if everything begins with me and my efforts. That's what religion does begin with me and what I do for God in the hope that I might somehow twist his arm to like me. And the Christian message is the complete opposite. Even when we were still sinners, God loved us so much he sent his son to die for us. It's all about grace, undeserved love. And there's no greater example of sacrificial giving than the Lord Jesus Christ who couldn't have been richer In very nature, God. He left all the splendor and glory of heaven. He was born as a man in a manger. He came first not to be a king, but as a carpenter. Someone said Jesus was born in a borrowed stable, preached from a borrowed boat, entered Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, ate the Last Supper, in a borrowed room and was buried in a borrowed tomb. The one who owned the heavens and the earth came to earth with nothing. Why did he do it? To pay off our debts. By nature, we are not rich. There's a huge variety amongst us. Some come from privileged backgrounds, others from quite modest backgrounds. Some have very large bank balances, others have very small bank balances. But 
All of us have this in common, that by nature we are spiritually bankrupt. We can't come to God on the basis of what we've got in our spiritual pockets and in our spiritual bank accounts and says, love me because of all the things I've done. No, spiritually, we deserve nothing from God but his condemnation. And we come simply as beggars in desperate need for his mercy. And Jesus Christ beggared himself to make us rich. This is the summer holidays and many students from St. Ebbs are off around the world traveling. And years ago, I heard this bit of advice from a friend who said, if you're traveling with friends in the summer, you'll never get to know, especially if you're going into any around all sorts of countries in Europe, you'll never get to know all the languages. So there's only one phrase you need to know in every language. My friend will pay. <laughs> That's all you need to know. And it's great advice spiritually. I will never be able to pay my debt spiritually. And I need to be able to point to the Lord Jesus and say, my friend will pay. My friend has paid. Because he, the rich one, the richest of all, became very, very poor, even to death on a cross, to pay my debt and take the penalty I deserved. Once we get that, it will be life-changing, totally. Has it changed your life? As you grasped this message, and some you need to for the first time. But the whole of the Christian life, maturity in the Christian life, discipleship in every area of life is about continuing to grasp this message so that it hits our hearts and changes our lives. Someone said that the last part of us to be converted is our pockets. I don't think that's true. I think of one friend of mine who first came to understand this amazing message of Christ. Within a week, he came to me and said, how can I give? He understood that God had given amazingly to him. He wanted to give to others. And I'd be surprised if that instinct hadn't come very early in your Christian life. The danger is we forget it because we cease by the, to let the Holy Spirit keep applying this message to every aspect of our life, including how we think about our time, our resources, our money. Two examples of giving. And then quite briefly, each of them. Four principles for giving. First, it's committed. Committed. Verses 10 and 11. Here's my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. See, what happened was, previously when Paul had mentioned this collection, they'd been moved about the needs of the Jerusalem church. And they'd signed up. They'd given initially. And they said, we're right behind it. But that was a distant memory. And perhaps they'd been moved in the moment. But they were in danger of not following through their commitment. And Paul is saying, look, it's not just about an emotional feeling. It's about ongoing commitment. Just listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, talking again about this collection. 
He says, verse 1, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. It's about commitment. It doesn't depend on hearing the apostle give a stirring appeal. It's about recognizing the need and responding and then continuing to respond week by week by week, putting money aside. This was the challenge to me this week as I prepared the sermon. Because it wasn't long ago I heard about a particular need and I made a resolution. I think that's something that I should get behind. And I took the leaflet. And I was fully determined to do something about it. That evening, I was struck by the desperate need and the fact that I could do something about it. The time had passed, and I'd done nothing. And I thought, this is a word for me. It's not enough just to respond on the day emotionally. It's about commitment. So as I was preparing, I actually thought, no, this is what I need to hear. And I stopped, and I set up the standing order. I don't know what it would mean you. And of course, sometimes there will be one-off appeals that make sense, and we think it's in a one-off way, this is what I'm going to give to. But so often there needs to be a commitment in giving. That's why many people find a standing order is a great way to give, to think prayerfully, and then just with a heart that's touched by the grace of God, rationally decide what it's right to give, make that decision, and then make sure it goes out week by week or month by month or however you arrange your giving. Of course, if you're a taxpayer, then wonderfully, in not only the grace of God, but by the grace of the government, the, the uh, inland revenue gives extra money on top. Committed giving. Next principle. Proportionate. End of verse 11. Well, I'll begin again, verse 11. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. Here are the words, according to your means. Verse 12, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. And Paul says, look, don't get me wrong, I'm not not trying to make you all paupers. You'll be able to give differently depending on the means that God has given. Some are able to give more, others are able to give less. Church and Christian organizations don't typically operate according to a membership fee. Think of a gym, the gym next door for instance, and you decide, am I going to join the gym or not? There's the same fee for everyone. You might be extremely wealthy, you could pay that over a thousand times, you pay exactly the same amount as the person who's got very little, and the result is the person who's got very little probably doesn't join the gym. Church doesn't operate like that. Some can give much more, and they do give much more, so that those who can give very little and and are able only do give little are subsidized effectively. Pay proportionately. In the Old Testament, the principle was a tithe, 10% of what you give, what you earn. In other words, those who earn more will end up giving more. Interestingly, the New Testament never commands the tithe. It just speaks about the importance of generous, sacrificial giving. And there may be some for whom 10% is too much. 
perhaps especially those who are dependent on others for their finances or maybe whose finances are bound up with others, maybe particularly if their finances are bound up with someone who's not a Christian. Those who are dependent on parents still in the home and the parents aren't Christians. Or someone who's married to a non-Christian spouse and their finances are joined in some way, it might not be appropriate to give as much as you would like to give. For others, 10% is very small indeed. You hardly notice it going out. And it would be appropriate to give significantly more. I've often referred to the example of John Lang, the, the builder. You've heard of Lang's builders, some of you. John Lang joined the family business a long time ago now. And because he was a member of the family, he went straight up quite high position, got a decent wage, and he found that he could live off a third of that wage. And so right from the beginning, he kept a third to cover his own costs and the costs of his family. He saved a third and he gave a third. Because he saved a third, it wasn't long before his savings mounted up and he found he could live entirely off his savings. And he gave everything away from then on. And still today, the Lang charities support a huge amount of Christian work around this country. Don't wait until you're earning, by the way. We've got some pathfinders here today. And you might not be earning, but perhaps you've got pocket money. Parents, it's, it's really good to teach the principles of giving from a very early age and encourage your children, to make decisions for themselves about where they'll spend their money. That way they're much more likely to pray if they are giving of their own resources. Of course, if you start giving when you've got very little, it'll make it much easier when you get a lot. If you've never given before the first paycheck, 10% of that first paycheck will seem like a huge amount. But if you give when you've got little and get into that principle, it'll be ingrained as the gospel works and becomes a lifestyle. Committed, proportionate. Third, corporate. Verses 13 to 15. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. See, Paul is not speaking to individuals. He's speaking to churches. And although we are individuals and we've got to make our own individual decisions about how we spend, we should think of ourselves not just as isolated individuals, but as members of churches. Very striking at the beginning of the chapter, Paul doesn't say, let me tell you about the giving of individuals in the Macedonian churches. And some gave a specially large amount, and I want to make sure that you, you notice them, and we're going to actually put their names on a board because they've given over a certain amount of money, and I want to honor them. That's what you'll find in schools and universities. Not churches, although there is a board actually just at the back there, which does name various people in the 18th century who gave money. It's a bad principle, isn't it? You don't get that in the Bible. No, it's, it's about churches. And that was a huge encouragement to me when I heard a preacher make this very point when I was a student that had very little money and said, think of yourself as giving not just an individual but as part of a church. So when the gift day came up, I gave my little pittance. It wasn't very much. But what an encouragement it was to feel that there was something we were doing together. And large sums, huge sums for my student mind were given, and I was part of it. And together, 
we were contributing to the gospel work. It's not just my giving, but our giving, and not just my needs, but our needs. That's the point. Here were others in other churches, actually, that were particularly poor. And Paul says, well, God has given you a large amount and them less amount, so you've got the responsibility and the privilege of giving to help them. And then if it's reversed in a future time, it'll go the other way. Uh, it, it, what I want is equality. He's not talking about absolute financial equality. He's just saying those who've got more are able to give more. And those who've got less can receive. That's what families do, isn't it? And we're to do it within the family of the church and across the families of churches. And so within our own church, we have a hardship fund worth you knowing. And so if times ever get especially hard, it's there that we might be able to help those who are going through especially hard times. At Harvest, every year, we, we give to support those in financial need, often linked with our mission partners, one overseas, and then those who've got particular needs here. Again, it's the same principle. We give 25% of our committed regular giving either to overseas mission, 19%, or UK mission, 6%. And there's a recognition that God has given us resources, and there are those in other parts of this country around the world who are gospel poor. Japan, very materially wealthy, but very poor, gospel-wise. And so we're supporting those from this country to take the gospel to Japanese people like the Brashes corporate. And then finally, final principle, committed, proportionate, corporate, finally, irreproachable. That's verses 16 to 24. It's lots of details about practicalities. I'm not going to go into the details now. But Paul says, I've set apart Titus to collect the money. And then he mentions in verses 18 and 19, another man who's with Titus. We don't know who he was, but he was in, in, in a very good standing with the church, a reputable man. And part of the reason that he sends these two is to make sure that the money is not misused. Verse 20, we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we're taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. And when it comes to matters of, of money, it's vitally important. We not only do the right thing, but we're seen to do the right thing. Absolutely irreproachable. And we take efforts here at St. Ebbs to do that. And if you ever see any kind of loophole, let us know. Let the treasurer know. Because we want to do things in an irreproachable way. So it's not my money. It's not the staff's money to, mend, to, to spend. You church members elect church council members, PCC members. And they elect a treasurer. There's a finance committee. Everything is scrupulously looked at to make sure everything is done in order. I've no idea who gives or what they give. No staff member does. The treasurer doesn't know. It's the financial administrator who'll see that. We wanted to be blind, so there's no suggestion of any influence or, or outside motivation to give. It's between you and the Lord. So we do the right thing and are seen to do the right thing. Well, we better stop. But before we do, let's spend a moment of, of quiet and let's each of us think, well, what's the challenge for me? Is it a challenge from one of those examples, the Macedonian churches and above all the Lord Jesus in his sacrificial giving? 
Or is there something to take from one of those principles? Committed, proportionate, corporate, irreproachable. Just a moment of quiet and then I'll pray. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Loving Father, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts to receive the grace of Christ, whether for the first time or yet again. May our awareness of how much you've given us in him, totally undeserved, may that change our hearts and flow into our lives, lives of sacrificial giving for your glory. Amen.